Chapter Eight of Arnig. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Arnig by Harriet E. Wilson. Chapter Eight. Visitor and Departure. Other cares engross me, and my tired soul, with emulative haste, looks to its God. The brother associated with James in business in Baltimore was sent for to confer with one who might never be able to see him there. James began to speak of life as closing, of heaven as of a place in immediate prospect, of aspirations which waited for fruition in glory. His brother, Louis by name, was an especial favorite of Sister Mary, more like her in disposition and preferences than James or Jack. He arrived as soon as possible after the request, and saw with regret the sure indications of fatality in his sick brother. And listened to his admonitions, admonitions to a Christian life, with tears, and uttered some promises of attention to the subject so dear to the heart of James. How gladly he would have extended healing aid! But alas, it was not in his power, so after listening to his wishes, and arrangements for his family and business, he decided to return home. Anxious for company home, he persuaded his father and mother to permit Mary to attend him. She was not at all needed in the sick room, she did not choose to be useful in the kitchen, and then she was fully determined to go. So all the trunks were assembled, and crammed with the best selections from the wardrobe of herself and mother, where the last mentioned articles could be appropriated. Nig was never so helpful before. Mary remarked, and wondered what had induced such a change in place of former sullenness. Nig was looking further than the present, and congratulating herself upon some days of peace, for Mary never lost opportunity of informing her mother of Nig's delinquencies, were she otherwise ignorant. Was it strange if she were officious, with such relief in prospect? The parting from the sick brother was tearful and sad. James prayed in their presence for their renewal in holiness, and urged their immediate attention to eternal realities, and gained a promise that Susan and Charlie should share their kindest regards. No sooner were they on their way than Nig slyly crept round to Aunt Abby's room, and tiptoeing and twisting herself into all shapes, she exclaimed, She's gone, Aunt Abby, she's gone, fairly gone, and jumped up and down. Till Aunt Abby feared she would attract the notice of her mistress by such demonstrations. Well, she's gone, gone, Aunt Abby. I hope she'll never come back again. No, no, Fredo, that's wrong. You would be wishing her dead. That won't do. Well, I'll bet she'll never come back again. Somehow I feel as though she wouldn't. She is James' sister, remonstrated Aunt Abby. So is our cross sheep just as much that I ducked in the river. I'd like to try my hand at curing her, too. But you forget what our good minister told us last week about doing good to those that hate us. Didn't I do good, Aunt Abby, when I washed and ironed and packed her old duds to get rid of her and helped her pack her trunks and run here and there for her? Well, well, Fredo, you must go finish your work or your mistress will be after you and remind you severely of Miss Mary and some others beside. Nig went as she was told. And her clear voice was heard as she went, singing in joyous notes the relief she felt at the removal of one of her tormentors. Day by day, the quiet of the sick man's room was increased. 
He was helpless and nervous, and often wished change of position, thereby hoping to gain momentary relief. The calls upon Fredo were consequently more frequent, her nights less tranquil. Her health was impaired by lifting the sick man, and by drudgery in the kitchen. Her ill health she endeavored to conceal from James, fearing he might have less repose if there should be a change of attendance, and Mrs. Belmont, she well knew, would have no sympathy for her. She was at last so much reduced as to be unable to stand erect for any great length of time. She would sit at the table to wash her dishes. If she heard the well-known step of her mistress, she would rise till she returned to her room, and then sink down for further rest. Of course, she was longer than usual in completing the services assigned her. This was a subject of complaint to Mrs. Belmont, and Fredo endeavored to throw off all appearance of sickness in her presence. But it was increasing upon her, and she could no longer hide her indisposition. Her mistress entered one day, and finding her seated, commanded her to go to work. "'I am sick,' replied Fredo, rising and walking slowly to her unfinished task, and cannot stand long. I feel so bad.' Angry that she should venture a reply to her command, she suddenly inflicted a blow, which lay the tottering girl prostrate on the floor. Excited by so much indulgence, of a dangerous passion, she seemed left to unrestrained malice, and snatching a towel, stuffed the mouth of the sufferer, and beat her cruelly. Fredo hoped she would end her misery by whipping her to death. She bore it with the hope of a martyr, that her misery would soon close. Though her mouth was muffled, and the sounds were much stifled, there was a sensible commotion, which James' quick ear detected. "'Call Fredo to come here,' he said faintly. "'I have not seen her to-day.' Susan retired with the request to the kitchen, where it was evident some brutal scene had just been enacted. Mrs. Belmont replied that she had some work to do just now. When that was done she might come.' Susan's appearance confirmed her husband's fears, and he requested his father, who sat by the bedside, to go for her. This was a messenger, as James well knew, who could not be denied. And the girl entered the room, sobbing and faint with anguish. James called her to him, and inquired the cause of her sorrow. She was afraid to expose the cruel author of her misery, lest she should provoke new attacks. But after much entreaty she told him all, much which had escaped his watchful ear. Poor James shut his eyes in silence, as if pained to forgetfulness by the recital. Then, turning to Susan, he asked her to take Charlie and walk out. She needed the fresh air, he said. And say to mother, I wish Fredo to sit by me till you return. I think you are fading from staying so long in this sick-room. Mr. B. also left, and Fredo was thus left alone with her friend, Aunt Abby came in to make her daily visit, and seeing the sick countenance of the attendant, took her home with her to administer some cordial. She soon returned, however, and James kept her with him the rest of the day, and a comfortable night's repose following, she was enabled to continue, as usual, her labors. James insisted on her attending religious meetings in the vicinity with Aunt Abby. Fredo, under the instructions of Aunt Abby and the minister, became a believer in a future existence, one of happiness or misery. Her doubt was, is there a heaven for the black? She knew there was one for James and Aunt Abby, and all good white people, but was there any for blacks? 
She had listened attentively to all the minister said, and all Aunt Abby had told her, but then it was all for white people. As James approached that blessed world, she felt a strong desire to follow, and be with one who was such a dear, kind friend to her. While she was exercised with these desires and aspirations, she attended an evening meeting with Aunt Abby, and the good man urged all, young or old, to accept the offers of mercy, to receive a compassionate Jesus as their Savior. "'Come to Christ,' he urged, all, young or old, white or black, bond or free, come all to Christ for pardon, repent, believe.' This was the message she longed to hear. It seemed to be spoken for her, but he had told them to repent. "'What was that?' she asked. She knew she was unfit for any heaven, made for whites or blacks. She would gladly repent, or do anything which would admit her to share the abode of James. Her anxiety increased. Her countenance bore marks of solicitude unseen before. And though she said nothing of her inward contest, they all observed a change. James and Aunt Abby hoped it was the springing of good seed sown by the Spirit of God. Her tearful attention at the last meeting encouraged his aunt to hope that her mind was awakened, her conscience aroused. Aunt Abby noticed that she was particularly engaged in reading the Bible, and this strengthened her conviction that a heavenly messenger was striving with her. The neighbors dropped in to inquire after the sick, and also if Fredo was serious. They noticed she seemed very thoughtful and tearful at the meetings. Mrs. Reed was very inquisitive. But Mrs. Belmont saw no appearance of change for the better. She did not feel responsible for her spiritual condition, and hardly believed she had a soul. Nig was in truth suffering much. Her feelings were very intense on any subject when once aroused. She read her Bible carefully, and as often as an opportunity presented, which was when entirely secluded in her own apartment, or by Aunt Abby's side, who kindly directed her to Christ, and instructed her in the way of salvation. Mrs. Belmont found her one day quietly reading her Bible. Amazed, and half crediting the reports of officious neighbors, she felt it was time to interfere. Here she was, reading and shedding tears over the Bible. She ordered her to put up the book and go to work, and not be sniveling about the house, or stop to read again. But there was one little spot seldom penetrated by her mistress's watchful eye. This was her room, uninviting and comfortless, but to herself a safe retreat. Here she would listen to the pleadings of a Saviour, and try to penetrate the veil of doubt and sin which clouded her soul, and long to cast off the fetters of sin, and rise to the communion of saints. Mrs. Belmont, as we said before, did not trouble herself about the future destiny of her servant. If she did what she desired for her benefit, it was all the responsibility she acknowledged. But she seemed to have great aversion to the notice Nig would attract, should she become pious. How could she meet this case? She resolved to make her complaint to John. Strange, when she was always foiled in this direction, she should resort to him. It was time something was done. She had begun to read the Bible openly. The night of this discovery, as they were retiring, Mrs. Belmont introduced the conversation by saying, "'I want your attention to what I am going to say. I have let Nick go out to evening meetings a few times, and if you will believe it, I found her reading the Bible today, 
just as though she expected to turn pious nigger and preach to white folks. So now you see what good comes of sending her to school. If she should get converted, she would have to go to meeting, at least as long as James lives. I wish he had not such queer notions about her. It seems to trouble him to know he must die and leave her. He says if he should get well, he would take her home with him, or educate her here. Oh, how awful! What can the child mean? So careful, too, of her. He says we shall ruin her health making her work so hard, and sleep in such a place. Oh, John, do you think he is in his right mind? Yes, yes, she is slender. Yes, yes, she repeated sarcastically. You know these niggers are just like black snakes. You can't kill them. If she wasn't tough, she would have been killed long ago. There was never one of my girls could do half the work. Did they ever try? interposed her husband. I think she can do more than all of them together. What a man! said she, peevishly. But I want to know what is going to be done with her about getting pious. Let her do just as she has a mind to. If it is a comfort to her, let her enjoy the privilege of being good. I see no objection. I should think you were crazy, sure. Don't you know that every night she will want to go toting off to meeting? And Sundays, too? And you know we have a great deal of company Sundays, and she can't be spared. I thought you Christians held to going to church, remarked Mr. B. Yes, but who ever thought of having a nigger go, except to drive others there? Why, according to you and James, we should very soon have her in the parlor, as smart as our own girls. It's of no use talking to you or James. If you should go on as you would like, it would not be six months before she would be leaving me, and that won't do. Just think how much profit she was to us last summer. We had no work hired out. She did the work of two girls. And got the whippings for two with it, remarked Mr. Belmont. I'll beat the money out of her if I can't get her worth any other way, retorted Mrs. B. sharply. While this scene was passing, Fredo was trying to utter the prayer of the publican God be merciful to me, a sinner. End of chapter 8